Uh, if you would uh, open your Bible to uh, the book of Acts uh, in chapter 8 this morning. We are going to examine uh, verses 1 through 8 this morning. After we pray, uh, we'll read the text together. Then we'll make some observations and applications as we go. Uh, let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are a people in need of grace. We ask God for you, the Holy Spirit, to open our minds to understand, to give us ears to be attentive to your instructions this morning. We pray for all who gather here and those who gather this morning at Dilly Bible Church. We ask for gospel clarity and for your servants to be obedient to all that the gospel commands of us. I lift up the McAvoys who are ill. I just pray for a return to health for them. I pray for Barbara and Jerry as Barbara recovers and as Jerry uh, longs to see his wife well again. I just pray for their comfort and for their strength, Lord. I pray that you would have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you are able, uh, would you stand for the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word from Acts chapter 8? And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we think about Acts chapter 8, it is called in some versions the Acts of the Apostles. It is probably more apt to say that it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Another way that we have looked at the book of Acts is that it is the Gospel according to Luke, Volume 2. As Luke has uh, stated in, in the first chapter of Luke that the, the desire that he has uh, is that you would know, that you would be certain of these things. And uh, this morning, I want us to be certain of one thing, that God's plan to save sinners will happen. 
God's plan to use Christian brothers and sisters to proclaim the gospel to the lost will happen. It's not an if, but it will happen. I want us to get this. But I want to, I want to pose a question as we begin this morning, and that is this. What will it take, Spring Hill Church, what will it take for us to be obedient to the great commission call to go? What will it take for us to make disciples of all nations? Another way you can think about the book of Acts is that it is the great commission in action by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, you're seeing in on the pages of this uh, book the great commission being carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're seeing this right before your eyes. What will it take for you and I to embrace the uncomfortability of bringing the gospel to hard and difficult places? How will we be moved away from the desire to be accepted, the desire to be liked, the desire to be normal, and moved toward faithful obedience? And regardless of the damage that it might cause our own reputation, so before we dive into uh, this week's passage, I want to look backward just a bit at chapter 7, get some context to uh, our text going forward. I want to look back at Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to read uh, 48 through 53. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen was speaking boldly. He spoke boldly as a representative of all of the Christians there in Jerusalem. And he was definitely speaking as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, he turns the wisdom and the practice of his own countrymen and their religion, and he turns it on its ear. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. This is Stephen's uncompromising truth. The message that comes from Stephen, it's decidedly contrary. And it is, it is particularly unambiguous in its exclusivity. He's saying, 
This is the exclusive truth about what has been accomplished by God in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and now this is post-ascension into heaven has given us this Holy Spirit that speaks this truth to you. A few weeks ago, it's been five or six weeks ago now, I quoted this, true worship is an engagement with God in the way in which God alone prescribes. True worship is in the way that God alone makes possible. This is Stephen's message. Stephen's message is simply this. The center of the worship community, my Jewish brothers and sisters, is not in your religious institution. The center of God-accepted worship is not in your temple. The center of God-accepted worship is not vested in your council's leadership. The center of God-accepted worship is more than a new ideal. The center of God-accepted worship is more than just a new way of sacrificial living. It's even more than that. The bold message of Stephen, the one that was uh, quite offensive, is this. The center of God-accepted worship rests fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And by virtue of Jesus' death for sin, by virtue of God having raised him from the dead, by virtue of his ascension to heaven, God has declared Jesus both Lord and Christ, the sacrifice and the king. The temple of God resides in Jesus Christ. The temple of God in Jesus makes the people of God who have been saved by grace through faith those whose worship is now acceptable. They are the center. They, in Christ, share in the temple of God. Well, let us see that this is his proclamation to them and listen to their response. Chapter 7, verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Pride, arrogance, conviction of sin, a desire to maintain self-governed, self-directed autonomy emboldened the people of Jerusalem to shut Stephen up. And they killed him. And at the feet of the Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul. He stands approving of their execution of Stephen. Why does he stand approving? Because Stephen, or because uh, Paul, believed that the council was doing a great service and a great glory to God. They were doing a great service to God. Are we silent? Church, concerning the proclamation of the gospel, knowing this. If you are bold, brothers and sisters, and I'm, I know one bold brother right there for sure, he's probably come against this many times. If you're boldly proclaiming the gospel, knowing this, 
You will be despised. You will be marginalized and even hated. And even hated. If you would turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, I want to begin in verse 18 of chapter 15 with the words of Jesus to his disciples. Verse 18, chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I would ask us to think about this as well this morning, Spring Hill Church. If you are not maligned and despised by the world... Is it because you find great comfort in the world? If you're not despised, maligned, hated, is it because your real motivation is comfort? Is it, is it your great love to actually be accepted by the world? To be popular, to be well-liked? Christian, you carry with you a very unpopular message. And this unpopular message is this, that self-directed, self-governed autonomy is actually hatred of God and of his Christ. We declare to our worldly neighbors and our family members and our, our friends that you are guilty before holy God. And then without repentance, without a turning away from self-governing autonomy and turning to Christ for the forgiveness of sin, all of your good deeds, all of your seemingly loving acts to your neighbors of kindness are nothing but filthy rags. And you remain under the judgment and the wrath of God. Those who hate God and His Christ will also hate you and your message. You, the faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the truth that they are not the center of the universe, that they are not the captain of their own ship, is a difficult pill to swallow. Wasn't it difficult for you and I when we came to faith? When we came before God and we said, I want control. I love control. I, I've been called, even by my wife, a control freak. I love control. 
I like things the way I like them. I like them where I like them. I like them in the order that I like them. I like them that way. I love to have control. But then when you go before holy God and he says, you control nothing. You control nothing. You bring nothing to this of value other than the sin that made his death necessary. That's what you bring. This is all you have. You control nothing. You must surrender. I don't know about you, but surrender doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy for me, and I'm sure that it doesn't come easy for most of us. Most of us are, are hated then when we proclaim the gospel. We are hated because uh, the professing Christian, for the most part, they want us to shut up. Well, and, and we, don't, we, don't, we don't proclaim the gospel because we do shut up. We, we shut up for the most part. We, we, like to, we like to be comfortable. We like to be liked. And so we idly sit around and avoid the uncomfortable proclamation of the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ. The world tells us inclusivity is the greatest virtue there is. That it is the great virtue that we should all hang on to. But that means that we have to include hatred of God. We have to include sin, murder, rape, whatever sin you want to name. We have to include that if we're going to be inclusive. But if you, if you proclaim the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, you are a narrow-minded bigot. You are just out of touch with the world. But the message we proclaim is this. We proclaim to all nations, all people, the truth of Jesus Christ. That it is the most inclusive message there is. It's exclusively about Jesus Christ, but it includes every type and stripe of sinner that there is. But they dismiss us because there's one way. Jesus says he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Without the truth, there is no way to know. Without the way, there is no way to go. Without the life, there is no way to live. That's our message. That's our message. And the world would tell us, you need to shut up. That makes us uncomfortable. You are way too narrow-minded. You are way too simple. You just don't get it. Well, armed with this hatred of sinners, of, of, of Stephen's proclamation about the exclusivity of Christ, they kill him. Let us look back at Acts chapter 8. And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Remember this. Stephen, he had a selfless love, didn't he? What was his motivation? It was a selfless love. 
In chapter 7, verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen has selfless love for those who would even stone him. His death is marked by that final prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The council's seeming success in silencing the man of God who was full of the spirit, full of the truth, the man who was the voice of the church at Jerusalem, emboldens the council. Not only, we seem to have had success. That's what they think when they've killed Stephen. We have had success. We shut him up. He's no more a problem. These Christians will go away. Pressure them enough, they'll deny this Christ. Pressure them enough, and they'll do nothing. They'll sit around. They'll quietly go away. This is, this is what they think. Because now they're emboldened to go against the whole church. Let's strike them all down. And if we apply enough pressure, they'll just go away. So knowing that this pressure is coming to all of us, I think one of the great uh, things that almost every pastor who is a friend of mine who, who talks with me about what does the church need to do better at? What, what truth does the church miss? What is it that they that the church is disobedient about, I'm just speaking generally, right? What is the church most disobedient concerning? And it is to make disciples of the nations, to make disciples across the pew and across the globe. That's what most would say. But what is it that motivated Stephen in himself boldly? It was love. It was a great love. A great love for sinners. A great love even for his persecutors. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A love for sinners says, don't hold this against them. There's great, there's good news in Jesus. It's, it's trusting fully that there is good news in Jesus for the most vile of sinner. Well, look at, with me at 1 John chapter 4. It is great love that I think we lack for the lost world. And I think it's also... This, I believe it's really a lack of a true love of God. A lack of understanding of what God has really done for us in Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does, does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
And this is the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. With a sacrificial love, Stephen dies and the council is moved to persecute Christians thinking that they have won a battle and now the battle is on. Verse two, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over them, over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. The church then we'll see is moved. This great persecution is moved. Remember from Acts chapter one in verse eight, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I want you to notice this. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and if you get around to it, you might be witnesses to me in these places. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' direction to the apostles. His direction is that to be a faithful witness to Judea, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will move you. It will move you to the dreaded Samaritans. It will move you to the God-hating sinful world. And this is not a suggestion, a suggestion for you. Jesus says, the spirit-empowered, blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ will be his witnesses wherever he moves them. And he will move his people. What links will God go to move us out? What links will he go to? Well, the persecution of the church. In this case, there was a command for them to go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. Great persecution comes, and where do they go? Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. God moved them. Sometimes we get complacent and we sit around on our hands or we close our mouths. I'm telling you that God will move you. God will move you. The true born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, he will move you where you are to go. Because his message, his kingdom will advance. It will accomplish what it is that he has set it out to do. They will be a faithful 
witness wherever God moves them and he will move them. Sometimes he will move the complacent, comfort, uh, comfortable believer through threats, through beatings, through persecutions, through imprisonment, even death. But you will be a witness of Jesus Christ if indeed you have been purchased by his blood. You will be. Complacency, you see, and comfort. I think complacency and comfort are great enemies to the forward move of the gospel. Complacency and comfort. That has been the American church, hasn't it? Think about it. What has the, what over the, you know, I've been doing this roughly 15 years. And 15 years ago, to be considered a successful church was to have a great show. To have great skits, awesome entertainment, fabulous musicians of great talent. And each week, the show's got to be better than the week before. Because if it's not, we're going to the church down the street who's got a better show. That's been the church. Complacent. Comfortable. Don't ask me to go out of my way to do anything. This morning in our Sunday school class, uh, Mark Dever was uh, teaching about this idea of uh, those who have great knowledge and great understanding of great theological truths. But they can't be inconvenienced to leave the house an hour early to pick up an older lady who needs a ride to church. And he says, although they have great knowledge, I would question whether that person is even a Christian at all. Because they cannot be inconvenienced. We cannot be uncomfortable. And I think that that, com that that complacency and that comfort, they are enemies to the forward move of the gospel. And even sometimes success. Success can be um, an enemy to the forward move of the gospel. Things are going quite well with us, let's say. There are a number of people coming to our little gathering. They are leaving the church happy and blessed each Lord's Day. We have given them comfortable food to eat from the word of God that makes them feel good about themselves. We are having great success. Even people might be coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus, but we're not moving outward to evangelize the world because we're pretty comfortable with our success here. In Mark's gospel, in uh, chapter 1, I just want to read to you from verse uh, 32 to uh, 38. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, that is, bringing to Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. Well, you see, these who were there, even the early disciples, they were thrilled with the success that they were having. They were thrilled with the success of the ministry going on at home. People were coming. The numbers were great. Many were coming to be healed by Jesus. But Jesus, rising early in the morning, he, he left to seek the Father concerning the advancing kingdom where should the kingdom be advanced to now? Where should the mission go to now? To which he was called to do. And Peter, of course, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, we are succeeding. Where did you go? We need to go to the next towns. We need to carry the mission and the kingdom of God beyond the borders of Jerusalem. We need to be Moving outward. Where are you, Jesus? The house is full. The house is full. Let us go to the next towns and I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Knowing that the proclamation of the gospel may well cause the believer discomfort, hatred, and in some cases prison, what is the motivation of the believer to go to the uncomfortable places that God may call them. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. Now they who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. What moves them? As we saw, the first and primary motivation that we see in Acts is selfless love, a love for people such that we entrust them to the grace of God, that he would indeed grant salvation to some of them in Jesus Christ. Selfless love tells the truth that God loves sinners, that God sent Jesus to die for the penalty of their self-directed, self-righteous deeds, all that they deserve Christ sent. There seems to be kind of like two types of people in the world to me. Those who hate God and hate his message and those who will hear the message and receive the gospel. Those who hate God and those who will receive the gospel with glad hearts. But I'm so thankful about this one truth is that in the sovereign will of God, it is he alone who knows them. People in that regard, and we don't. So what do we do? We preach the whosoever gospel wherever we go. Whosoever God wills will be saved. We trust that. We could be hated. We could be killed. We could be imprisoned. 
But God will save the souls that he uh, chooses using the instruments, his ambassadors, his those whom he has given both the ministry, which is the job, let's say, of reconciliation and the words of reconciliation. We possess the truth of the gospel. We possess it. It is ours. It belongs to us. But it is not to be put under a lampshade and hidden. It's not for us to cower in a corner and just be happy with our, our, our me and Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. I know, how, I know a lot of Christians who have kind of said that to me in a roundabout way. I don't gather with the Lord's people on Sunday. Me and Jesus and my Bible. It's all I need. I need me, Jesus, and my Bible. Well, no. You need. You need you. The power of the Holy Spirit in you. And you need to be obedient to what the Scriptures command. The Scriptures command. You are saved as an individual. All of us are saved as individuals, right? And we Americans love individuality. We do. I want it my way, just like me. I like it my way. I like being an individual. I like doing things the way I like doing them. But we are saved to a community. We are saved to a kingdom. We are kingdom people. We are saved individually. We are saved collectively. We are saved to something. A lot of us think about being saved from sin. What have you been saved from? I would primarily answer that question myself. Some people will answer that question. I was saved from myself. I think the real answer is this. You were saved from God. God is fearful. God is wrathful. God is exacting. God is holy and perfect. If you were saved, you were saved from God. You were saved from wrath. You were saved from the terror of being in front of holy God. You were saved from that. But you were saved to a community of new people. New. See, some people also think about Christianity in this way. They think, they think about our faith is this. When I came to faith in Jesus, I became a better father. I became a better husband. I am a better citizen. God doesn't save us to be better. He saves us to be new, brand new, with new affections, new passions, new desires, His kingdom desires, selfless desires, God-centered desires, God-directed, God-centered, others-oriented. Think about the cross. I, I was thinking about this on my prayer walk this morning, about, about how the cross... It, 
thinking about the cross in a way that, that, that I want to think about the vertical. I think about the post on the back. And that is the vertical relationship with God has, has been reconciled. I've been saved from his wrath in this vertical post that I carry about for the sake of Christ. And I was nailed to the cross beam that I might go away from self and to others. Upward and vertical. That is the cross for us to bear. Believers knowing that they will be rejected, hated, marginalized by some are motivated by a selfless love such that the believer will endure the shame of the gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect. As we think about, I think about the words of Nehemiah in chapter 8, which is also verse 8 of chapter 8 in Acts, I believe is the same thing. And do not be grieved. That is, when you're under persecution, do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. As the Christians were moved in persecution, as the Holy Spirit came upon them and moved them to the place that God would direct them, guess what it says happened in that city? There was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. The writer of Hebrews tells us as believers to run the race with endurance of the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the Christian motivated by? It is the joy that is set before them, despising the shame, enduring the shame for the sake of the joy of those who would receive Christ, those who would believe. I think sometimes we only get joy in ourselves. We only think about joy in our own salvation, joy in our own walk with Jesus. But even the heavens... Rejoice when one sinner turns. When one sinner repents, the host of heaven shouts with great joy. I would pray that we as Spring Hill Church would become the church that that becomes our greatest thrill and our greatest joy. That when we gather, we each have stories to tell the whole body, hey, this week I spoke to the guy at the grocery store and I told him about the salvation that he could have in Jesus Christ. And right there, he wept and repented and received Christ. Would that not fill our hearts with great joy? Would that not edify the church and fill the church with great joy? For the, joy, for the joy of those who would receive the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, the Christian is moved to bring the gospel to uncomfortable places. The Christian will be a witness to Jesus Christ. And sometimes God will bring hard and perverse things in our lives 
to bring about the salvation of hard and perverse people. Because that's who we bring the truth to. A hard and perverse people. Thomas Akempis says this, it is a great grace to endure prideful, perverse, hardened people. It is a great grace to do that. Motivated by love, motivated by the joy of salvation, the Christian goes to hard places. I pray for us as a church that we will be moved to bring the gospel to all the world, that we will be moved by selfless love, that the joy of our salvation in Christ will be delivered to all of those whom God might save. I pray that we, if we are not so moved, if we are not so moved right now, I'm going to say this again. I said this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. I pray that the God of all comfort would make you so miserably uncomfortable that you would be moved. That he would make you so miserably uncomfortable in your comfort, in your complacency, that he would throw things at you, whatever it takes to get you off your duff and go. It's such a simple... See, the Great Commission, right? Is that a great suggestion? No. It's a great command. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It means as you are going. So you guys are going already, every day. You're going somewhere. You go places. You go to the store. You go to work. You go to the gym, maybe. Not me anymore. But you go to those places... And as you go, do you carry that gospel with you? Do you go, ah, I'm here in the grocery store and this person is going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm so strange. But I'm going to somehow, while they're bagging my groceries, tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. And they may reject me and think I'm an idiot, but I'm going to do it anyway. I hope that we become those kind of people. And I pray that if we're not, that God would just make us so uncomfortable that we have to. Because the Great Commission is not a suggestion. And if it takes discomfort to move us from complacency and obedience, so be it. All praise be to God if He does.